Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you about a terrific podcast called Time to Eat the Dogs. It's hosted by Michael Robinson, a historian, and it's about exploration. Now, if you're clever, and I know you are because you listen to the New Books Network, you can probably figure out why a podcast about exploration would be called Time to Eat the Dogs. Well, Michael has interviewed many scholars and historians and researchers, and he even interviewed an astronaut about their books about exploration. You can find Time to Eat the Dogs at timetoeatthedogs.com. What else? You can also find it on iTunes. As I say, we really love this podcast at the New Books Network, and we love it so much that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So I'm going to stop talking. It's Time to Eat the Dogs, a podcast about science, history, and exploration. I'm Michael Robinson. Ten years after the first summit of Everest by Tenzig Norgay and Edmund Hillary, a team of 19 Americans and hundreds of Sherpas attempted to do it again. The American expedition would be different from Norgay and Hillary's. It combined high-altitude climbing with scientific research. The climbing party included a glaciologist, sociologist, psychologist, and biophysicist. Today, I talk with Phil Clements, historian at California State University, Chico, about this strange expedition. It is the subject of his new book, Science in an Extreme Environment, the 1963 American Mount Everest Expedition. Phil Clements, welcome to Time to Eat the Dogs. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. In your book, you're talking about the American Mount Everest Expedition, which which goes up the mountain in 1963, right? That's right, yep. In the spring, the pre-monsoon season of 1963. So Tenzig Norgay and, and Edmund Hillary make the first ascent in, in 1953. And then there are a number of expeditions after that. There's a Swiss expedition. There's a Chinese expedition. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the goal of, uh, of this American expedition. Well, the expedition had... Um different goals based on who you asked in the expedition. Mm-hmm. So the way that uh, it was framed by the uh, expedition leader, Norman Durenferth, who, by the way, was on one of those Swiss expeditions in the 50s, um, he really, from a, from a personal level, you can tell he really just wanted to get back to the Himalaya and get back onto the mountain. And so <clears throat> he was you know, looking for ways to put an expedition together um, in the United States that might garner some funding. Because in those days, right, expeditions to Everest were these enormous affairs um, that required, in the case of the 63 expedition, uh, you know, 900 plus porters to carry all the tons of material up to the base camp and then a huge Serpa contingent um, to then help ferry the supplies up higher and higher. Um, lots of different climbers. So you have lots of redundancy in case, you know, somebody takes a fall or gets sick. That kind of expedition requires a lot of money. And of course, you know, there were others, other expeditions at the time that were smaller, you know, the more Alpine style. Um, and that was in fashion as well. But maybe crucially, 
the expeditions on Everest that had succeeded up to that point had been larger affairs. And that requires money, and it's hard to get money for climbing um, anything in the United States in the 1950s and 1960s. However, um, it was easier to get money to conduct scientific research. And it was even easier to secure funding if that research played into um, some of the Cold War anxieties of the time. So it's kind of like connecting it to the JFK's New Frontiers rhetoric right, of, the, of his presidential campaign, where, you know, the high Himalaya for Derenberth is this new frontier. Um, for Kennedy, it's the, you know, it's the 1960s, the potential for, you know, discovery and, and sort of conquest or uh, American achievement in, in space and outer space. But for Derenberth, it's more terrestrial. Since you bring up Kennedy and the uh, the Cold War, uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the politics of the expedition um, and and how um, climbing Everest somehow is doing more than more than one thing. Yeah. So as as I was mentioning, like for Deer and Firth, right, the expedition is kind of this this scientific mountaineering venture, um, but the way that he kind of couches that uh, rhetoric is the United States needs to show the world that it too can climb these, you know, extreme, harsh, difficult mountains in the Himalaya. Because in 1960, when he's first forming these these documents, these prospectuses, the Chinese had just climbed Mount Everest from the north side. The red Chinese had just climbed <laughs> um, Everest from the north side. And purportedly... You know, when they got to the top of the mountain, they placed a plaster bust of Chairman Mao <laughs> on the summit, right? And then they mm-hmm. then they left the summit. Uh, and it's a really sort of magnificent tale, the 1960s climb. But it when it gets news of the climb reaches the West, there's a lot of skepticism, a lot of skepticism mm-hmm. about it. And so having, in some senses, kind of, been beaten to the top of Everest by the communists, Darren Firth says, we need to show the world that we too are up to the challenge. Um, and of course, that also connects with the Kennedy kind of new frontier rhetoric of rigor, right? That Americans right. are these rigorous, um, will not back down from a challenge. It's, it's all the same rhetoric of the moonshot and the space race. Yeah. So what about the local politics of the Himalaya? Were there things going on with China that affected the expedition? So uh, in terms of the politics at the time, China has been sparring with India over its northern, over India's northern border, China's southern mm-hmm. border in the Himalaya. Um, of course, the border of China runs along the summit of Mount Everest, shares it with Nepal. So... Mount Everest, that summit itself represents kind of this boundary space um, between Mm -hmm. East and hopefully the West, because the United States is at the time kind of um, currying favor with Nepal. And based on those early proposals and then based on the actual 
diaries of the climbers as they're traveling through Nepal on their way to Mount Everest, it's apparent to the to these uh, actors that Nepal serves as kind of a buffer zone between China and, and India, right farther to the south. Um, and there's this fear that China is going to, you know, invade Nepal and then into India via these engineering projects that it's undertaking um, in in southern China and then also in Nepal, right? There are Chinese that when the Everesters and the Americans get to um, uh, get on the trek to Mount Everest, they, they come across a bridge that these Chinese are building, these Chinese engineers are building. And they're like, what are the Chinese doing here? Oh, they're building a bridge so that they can invade Nepal later. Oh, okay. Not as, you know, a, a, this humanitarian kind of um, mission. So the, the the expedition itself is in some ways fright with these, these politics, these political considerations. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, the mountaineers, the American mountaineers who accompany the expedition are very uh intent that they want to stay above these political political considerations that that mountaineering you know the mountaineers are there to mountaineer right that um climbing is for climbing's sake um mm-hmm. and there's a parallel there with like the science too the science is for science's sake right that learning and knowledge is, should be gained for its own sake not for political considerations but of course you can't separate the two and so, so as a result you get this really interesting colorful cast of characters here on the mountain from you got a sociologist richard emerson and you have a biophysicist you've got a glaciologist you have a psychologist and then you have people who have real mountaineering experience can you talk a little bit about what happens on the mountain and uh how this this crew organizes itself for all of these different purposes yeah it's a pretty interesting story so at first i would say that it, with the exception of the psychologist um a fellow named jim lester all of the all of the uh, expedition members had significant mountaineering experience um so even the most like even the most sort of sciency of the guys were were mountaineers uh richard emerson the sociologist was uh, a guide a mountain guide in the Tetons um, who climbed in the Himalaya. Uh, Maynard Miller, the glaciologist, had climbed extensively in Alaska um, in the Great Ranges up there and uh, had spent you know, his professional career living on glaciers. The biophysicist Will Seary, who was you know, originally a Manhattan Project physicist, before turning to you know his, his craft toward medical sciences and the life sciences, he had climbed uh, in South America in the Andes and also in the United States uh, extensively. Right, so these they're they're scientists by or professionally they're scientists, but um, they're also I mean they're also pretty accomplished mountaineers as well. Everybody needs to do to be able to do work. In an environment like uh, the Himalaya, the high Himalaya, you know, people get sick, people die. Um, if you want the expedition to be successful, then everybody needs to be able to contribute. Uh, and when you hear Darren Frith talk about why he recruited the psychologist, Jim Lester, he's thinking, oh, well, we want someone there who will not in any way be colored by the desire to 
climb the mountain that he'll be able to be objective because he's not interested in climbing. He's just interested in his own route. So he was brought on board expressly because he wasn't a climber. Yes. Right. That's, that was the, that was the thinking. Um, because yeah, you want your psychologist to, you know, if he's doing kind of the psychoanalysis of, uh, or psychoanalysis of, um, of the team that he's not going to have this kind of like impetus to climb be a, a bias in his, his observations. So um, when they're all underway, right, after all the grants have been approved and all the fundings come in and they arrive in Nepal um, and start their trek into the hinterland, right, toward the Himalaya and up mm-hmm. into Mount Everest, the Everest region, some interesting things happen. So the the thought originally was to not just to climb uh, Mount Everest, but to also climb Lhotse and Nupsi, which are the two closest mountains mm-hmm. in proximity to Mount Everest, right? They're, they're all in the same massif. They're all, they're neighboring peaks. Um, and Durenforth talks about this as kind of like a grand slam, that we're not just going to climb Everest, we're going to climb the other two mountains that are right there as well, which are also extremely difficult. They're, technically, they're more difficult than at Mount Everest. And thus, we're, you know, uh, the United States is going to put up sort of the most extravagant spectacle of climbing that the Himalaya has seen yet. Right? So it's kind of like bigger is better almost in a way. So on the way in, the trek in, though, that maybe even before that, um, before they get over there, they start to abandon that idea in favor of possibly climbing Everest via the normal route, which at that point was newly normalized, the South Coal route, and also climb it via the west shoulder and the west ridge, which had not yet been climbed, uh, and possibly completing a traverse over the mountain. So a traverse, right, is when you climb up one side of the mountain and you go down a different side. And from a technical point of view, that's especially on a mountain like Everest, which is, you know, as, yeah, which is huge and unforgiving. And from a mountaineer's perspective, going up one side and then down a different route that you've never been mm-hmm. on before. So what would make that so difficult? You don't know the landmarks. You don't know the way. You don't know the objective dangers in front of you. You know, if climbing down the same route you climb up, you get to see, oh, that slope is loaded. We should stay away from that slope. Or, or there's a cornice here. We should make sure we don't go near that cornice. If you're going down a different side, you've not seen any of those dangers on the way up. And so it's very easy for the risk of that descent to climb, um, you know, the, the risk to heighten. So this West Ridge plan was seen as a substitute for the original Grand Slam idea. There's a thought that, hey, what if we climb this totally unclimbed route before, put a new route up Everest and also traverse it, and at the same time we get as many of our own members up onto the summit as possible, so maybe we can get six, eight, ten members all up on the summit, wouldn't that be grand? And that would uh, sort of replace the idea of the Grand Slam. And so this gets started, and there are certain members of the expedition, including some of the scientists, or the people who are there ostensibly to do science, who get really enthusiastic about the possibility of climbing a route that had not yet been climbed. Like that, that sense of the unknown uh, was really uh, appealing to mm-hmm. some of the members, including um, Barry Bishop, who, uh, while a an accomplished climber, having climbed, um, put up a first ascent on Amadablam, 
which is, you know, within eyeshot of Mount Everest. Mm -hmm. Um, Just a few years before, he's there on assignment with National Geographic. So he's the one that takes most of the photos um, that are included in in my book, Mm -hmm. especially those really pretty ones. He's there on assignment. And so he's got kind of got this obligation to get up as safely as possible to the summit. He's really enamored with the idea of climbing the West Ridge. And of course, Willie Unsold and Tom Hornbein, the two who would eventually go on to successfully summit via the West Ridge and the Hornbein Kular, um, they they were the driving force behind that West Ridge climb, which has been, you know, which still today is rightly seen as one of the um, most audacious <laughs> And also awesome climbs that's ever been completed. In fact, uh, it was interesting to me to read your book. And you talk a lot about the science and really kind of interesting scientific work on the mountain. And when I was doing a little research on my own about this climb, looking at other sources, it's that West Ridge ascent that seems to get all of the publicity. Is that a correct characterization of this expedition? Yes. I, well, so what, yes, yes, with a caveat, you know, one of the things they were actually doing on the mountain was climbing the mountain. That was kind of goal number one was we need to get an American on top of Mount Everest. Once that's accomplished, then then we can put all of our energy into all the other things we're trying to do, right? The mm-hmm. glaciology program, the physiology program, the sociology program, the psychology program, possibly putting a route up another another side of the mountain. So, uh, but yeah, the West Ridge climb definitely comes away as as what makes this expedition, I think, famous, especially in the long run. And in part, that's because, you know, that traverse has not been repeated. Uh, uh, 50-some-odd hmm. years later, it still stands, I mean... Um, Uli Steck just went there to try to repeat it and he you know he died this last season up on Nupsi. so yeah it still stands as this this unrepeated climb and descent and so I think that that has helped it to endure uh, you know Jim Whitaker is the first American to climb Everest we had the South Coal route with um, with Gombu the his um, another climber who was one of the Sherpas that accompanied the expedition. Um, and people remember that, but uh, I think that because Whitaker is climbing the same route right, that had been climbed by Tenzing and, uh, and Hillary, that it doesn't quite have the same lasting resonance as the West Ridge. And of course, the scientific projects, right? Uh, when I was doing my research for this um, initially years ago, and I discovered this as a project. You know, I was flipping through a book. I was talking about the American climb in 63. And um, the scientific component was a sentence. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, another recent book on the 63 climb, you know, maybe there are two paragraphs out of, 250 pages that really focus on the science and the more i dug into the the project uh the more i realized that the scientific aspect the research aspect of this expedition is 
a tremendous proportion of that expedition of the manpower of the material um of the funding um and of the um the rhetoric surrounding the expedition both at the time and then immediately afterward often you hear the goals of scientific research are to develop some kind of scientific study that's generalizable you know if you are interested in high blood pressure you try to find a group that's representative let's say of a larger population you study the group and then you hope you can extrapolate and generalize to a to a bigger group and in fact it almost seems to work in reverse on Everest it's about the most exceptional place on the planet. So can you talk a little bit about that? Right, yeah. I mean, Mount Everest is, it is, you know, definitively exceptional. It is the highest, the summit is the highest point on, on, on Earth. So any kind of knowledge that's generated there is imbued with this exceptional nature. And that's, that's one of the things that this makes it so interesting. So it's an interesting case for, you know, the history of science. Because there are, yeah, a couple problems. First, scientific experiments typically try to ascertain knowledge that's universal, like you said, or generalizable. But when you go to a place like Mount Everest, it becomes really hard to produce generalizable results. And part of that's because, as I said, the environment, as you said, the environment is, is exceptional. Um, which means if you find, if you generate some some results in this exceptional environment, are they also going to be true in normal environments, environments that are not exceptional, right? The mm-hmm. mundane environments. Um, mm-hmm. So the way that these scientists go about sort of framing their projects, because they recognize this problem, they invent this shorthand for overcoming the problem that they call reality testing that unlike Mm -hmm. that Mount Everest is unlike a laboratory in that it is real. It is a non simulated environment that it is uncontrolled Mm -hmm. unlike laboratories, which are controlled, um, you know, where you can, the, the whole, the whole idea behind a laboratory is that, the um, technicians that are working there can control all the variables except for the one that they're testing. On Everest, you can't, you, you, that's, it's impossible, it turns out. <laughs> they tried to control as much as they could. Um, it's incredibly difficult to control anything up there because the environment is so harsh and the altitude uh, is so high. Um, and so the thought was, well, there are going to be things that we want to test for um, that are important to this Cold War effort that only emerge in exceptional places under extraordinary circumstances. So what kind of scientific work would require that kind of condition? The sociologist, for example, Richard Emerson. So he's studying... um, small group dynamics, and he's really interested in how small groups pursue goals. Uh, And his thinking is that, you know, we we can do this study in a lab, and he does a study in a lab at Cincinnati, 
um, about small groups goal striving. But the thing about small groups that are pursuing goals under unusual circumstances, imagine for a minute soldiers on a foreign battlefield, right? And the, the Korean conflict is fresh on his mind. Um, mm-hmm. The prospect of, you know, the Cold War turning hot, fresh on his mind. Um, I mean, Bay of Pigs, right? <laughs> In 1963, it, this, everything is is coming together here. Uh, so soldiers on a foreign, foreign battlefield have a, a singular objective that they're trying to accomplish. What is it that's going to maximize their chances for accomplishing that objective socially? Like what what are the dynamics of the group that are allow them to maintain a high motivation um, to achieve a goal under extremely stressful circumstances? So his thought is that the mountaineers on Mount Everest might serve as a as an analog. Right to these these soldiers, these American soldiers, um, the the psychologist is studying how stress uh, can influence the um, the behaviors of these individuals as they're trying to climb the mountain, in the hopes that he's going to be able to generalize uh, specific personality attributes that would be beneficial for the military to screen for when recruiting submarine crews, which he thinks are also analogous, right? So submarines, nuclear submarines are, again, a new invention. Um, These nuclear missile submarines, they're able to, you know, stay underwater and isolated for six months at a time. Um, Their crews are going to be made up of men in the same age group as these climbers, uh, in isolation, just like these climbers, um, living in very close quarters, just like these climbers, right? So he's hoping that that he'll be able to see where or or who deals with the stresses of climbing under these conditions the best. It seems like um, we've we've come such a long way in human subjects testing. Where in the 1960s, the, you know, the Milgram experiment <clears throat> kind of questioned, you know, we, we need to protect our human subjects. And that seems to work really well, except when you want to have a study where you don't protect human subjects. Right. Yeah, right. And it, you actually want to see what happens when they are in, uh, in, in really mortal danger. Right. Exactly. The, the subjects have to, they have to be, uh, under real threat, not simulated threat. Right? They, mm-hmm. That's that's the thought anyway. That that the reality of the place will will create pressures that you you simply cannot reproduce in a laboratory, um, and that those pressures will then reveal um, responses that again cannot be repeated in a laboratory. And the, the sociologist was doing it, the psychologist was doing it, and the biophysicist uh, Will Siri, who was a uh, professor researcher at Berkeley, UC Berkeley, um, were doing it as well. I, he was doing that too, trying to, you know, he, he had done experiments on human subjects in um, hypobaric chambers, right? Chambers, rooms where they turn down the oxygen mm-hmm. uh, pressure, uh, the oxygen mixture in the atmosphere in order to see, you know, how people respond. To that and and under simulated conditions, right? They respond. He the thought was they they might be responding differently than they would if if the um, conditions were 
real, right? Non-simulated, uncontrollable. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really interesting. It turns out that, I mean, this is, this has been known for a while, but, um, there's something about acclimatization, right? Uh, getting your, your physiological adapt adaptation to altitude over time that, um, can't really can't be repeated in a laboratory. It can't be repeated at sea level in a hyperbaric chamber. Uh, something about being actually exposed to low atmospheric pressures um, generates a physiological response that, that they can't they can't achieve in a in a in a room at sea level. That's really interesting. And for for Siri, right? His his analog is. Is astronauts, people who are going to live in low atmosphere or no atmosphere conditions for extended periods of time or high altitude bombardiers, right? The the men flying the B-52s um, at Soviet airspace 24 hours a day. So it's all, I mean, it's all wrapped up in the Cold War, but it's all dependent on this idea that Mount Everest as a unique place has these um, effects that you just cannot replicate almost anywhere else on the globe. Phil Clements, uh, this has been great. Thank you so much for uh, speaking to us today. Yeah, thanks, Michael. It's been a real pleasure for me, and I uh, look forward to the next time. That's our show for today. Our theme music was composed by Zabrat. If you want to listen to other episodes of Time to Eat the Dogs, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Please take a few moments to rate and review it. I'd like to hear what you think. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to get in touch, email me at time to eat the dogs, that's one word, lowercase, at gmail.com. You can also find episodes, links, blog posts, and a lot of exploration related stuff at time to eat the dogs.com.